fundamental question about being a Christian. What is being a Christian? What is salvation? And who is this person, Jesus? What does he say about himself? Who is he? How can we understand him? How can we understand the claims that he makes on our lives? And it's often said that Jesus is the answer, but of course that does depend on what the question was. If the question is this, who is the key to all the promises of the Old Testament of the Bible? Then the answer is definitely Jesus. If the question is, who is the key to all the promises in the book of the prophet Isaiah? The answer is definitely Jesus. If the question is, who is the key to your life if you are a Christian? The answer ought to be Jesus. And if the question is, who do you need to have as the key to your life if you are not a Christian? The answer is still Jesus. It really is all about him. But it's just getting who the him is. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to look into the book of the prophet Isaiah and see how Jesus is described in this prophecy. And you will remember, if you've been uh, along before, let me tell you if you haven't been along before, that uh, this prophecy tells us that God has an absolutely amazing plan that he has had for a long, 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 long time And uh, his uh, plan is to bless the whole world, um, including the nation that he chose and including all the other nations too. And his plan uh, in particular is to use his servants to do this. And in the book of Isaiah, we've found that there is a servant called the worm servant, who's basically us. And he plans to turn the worm servant into a bright weapon. There's the worm servant who becomes a bright uh, soldier in the army of the Lord. And how's that going to happen? Because the worm servant is deaf and blind and sinful. And how is that servant going to be transformed? Uh, Yeah, and becomes bright like that. Uh, or if you put it another way, right at the beginning of the book of Isaiah, there's the rubbish city, uh, which he wants to turn into a beautiful city, to turn the faithless city, in which there is blood and violence and fickleness and idolatry, into the city which everybody says, I'd love to belong to that city, and all the nations will go up to it uh, to belong to that city. How's he going to do that? And how's he going to bring his people home? Because that's another aspect or another way of putting what he's going to do. He's going to bring all his people home. They're far away. And he's going to bring them back. And he's going to turn the desert that they travel through into a garden. And how's he going to do all those things? And although I've just said it in a couple of minutes, this is a huge question. And the the, the book begs that question all the way through. How on earth? Is God going to change that situation into that situation? How is he going to do for those people what he says he'll do to make them into those people? It's a huge question. 
And in the chapters that we had read to us, we have the answer. And it is a very shocking, surprising and wonderful answer. It's a, a staggering secret and you'll staggering meaning shocking, surprising. We've already met the ideal servant in some of the previous chapters and it's said of him that he is tasked with bringing justice to the nations, which is more than just a few words. That, that means to bring royal rightness to the nations, all the nations that are topsy-turvy, higgledy-piggledy, sinful, corrupt, idolatrous. He's going to put them right doesn't mean that every single person in every single nation is going to be put right but it means that God will bring that rightness into the whole sphere of the nations not just one ethnic group but across a wide range of ethnic groups and we saw uh, the other time that uh, it was last week that he will suffer a surprising setback why because he's delightful to the Lord how does he get set back But we also saw that he will rise up. And here in the chapter that we're going to look at, we find so much more about this servant. So what I'm going to do, uh, really just to scratch the surface of this text, is to tell you some of the features of it, to look at his extreme rise, to look at his suffering, which I'm going to say is substitutionary suffering, to look at his supreme success and the result of his suffering and then I'll just wrap it up at that point. So please have your Bible open and um, this text is so marvellous that you can keep on dipping into it and seeing new things. But let me just uh, fly over the top of it first and make a few observations about this text. It starts in 52 verse 13 and ends in 53:12, but the effect of the text goes on right the end, right through to the end of chapter 55. So let me first of all say it's poetic. I'm going to say it's enigmatic and repetitive. So let's do the poetic first. It is actually five very neat paragraphs or stanzas, I think is the technical term. The first section, the first stanza of this poem is 52.13 to 15, which begins, See my servant. So the person speaking is the Lord, because it's his servant. The Lord is speaking. The second bit is 53.1 to 3, and that's uh, we speaking. 53, who has believed our message? And uh, we, end of verse 3, we esteemed him not. Now, who are the, who's the we? And it might well be the worm servant is speaking. We, we people who saw him and did or didn't understand him and uh, perhaps speak about him. Then the next one is 53, 4 to 6 which talks about his sufferings. And here it is we who end up being swapped with him because, like in verse 4, he took up our infirmities 
and he carried our sorrows. So this whole business of substitution that, uh, or an exchange, he suffers but the sins are ours. And then in 53, 7-9, it talks about him as a lamb. 53, 7-9, he was oppressed and afflicted. He did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And it talks about him being like a lamb. And then in the fifth uh, stanza, or fifth section, which is verse 10, 11, and 12, This seems to go back to the Lord's viewpoint. It was the Lord's will to crush him. The Lord makes his life a guilt offering. And in verse 11, in the middle of that, it says, By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and I give him a portion among the great. So it's gone back to speaking about the Lord. Yes, so it's quite neatly done. Uh, okay, the next thing is it's, we said it's poetic, it's enigmatic. Enigma. Is enigma Latin or Greek? Uh, um, yeah, Latin or Greek. Is it, is it a Latin word, enigma? Do you have that in, in Italian? Was it? It's Greek. Okay, hard luck if you're Italian, it's not your word. Uh, enigma, it means uh, a riddle. Um, uh, something that you can't quite easily work out. So there's lots of things here that people will say, well, what exactly does that mean? You say, I don't know. It's, it's a bit enigmatic. It's a bit, um, it's a bit uh, difficult to quite get the detail. So one big riddle is, is this one person or is this many people? And that's a very important question. So, of, of the s- servants that the Lord has had, you remember the victorious servant? Uh, those of you who are here for that, that was one person, wasn't it? Cyrus. You remember the worm servant? That was multiple people. Us. So, is this an us or a him? Uh, and the rabbis say, I looked on a rabbinic website, and they say, definitely not one person. This is definitely the nation of Israel. But the New Testament says, actually, this is one person. The, the, clue, the answer to the riddle is, this is Jesus. The New Testament says it's one person. And there's things uh, like poetic. So verse 14, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, his, farm, his form marred beyond human likeness. Is that, do we take that literally? To say that he was so bashed up that nobody ever has been bashed up even worse? Or is it sort of a bit more poetic and saying he became repellent? There's things about that. Uh, there's things like in verse 15, he will sprinkle many nations. The word can mean sprinkle, which is what you do with water, to make something clean, like in a cleansing operation. Or it can mean startle. <laughs> startle. What, what, what's he going to do? Is he going to sprinkle many nations or <laughs> startle many nations? And the word could be either. And maybe your transla- what translation does yours say? Marvel? Uh, so I've got in verse 52, uh, chap- chapter 52, verse 15. I've got spring. Sprinkle, sprinkle, startle. 
And of course, the big the big riddle is how can all this be fulfilled? Let me tell you also, it's repetitive because poetry tends to do that. It, there's rep- repetition of the word form, verse 14, his form was marred, same as the word beauty in, verse, in 53, verse 2. Uh, there's a repetition of many. So you get that in verse 15, he will sprinkle many nations. Then in chapter 53, uh, by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and uh, verse 12, he bore the sin of many. And in the beginning of verse 12, the word great is literally the word many. So again, you've got sort of words being used to sort of stretch their meaning and make you think what they're saying. word sorrows is repeated. It's in verse 3. He's a man of sorrows. Verse 4, he carried our sorrows. Suffering is repeated, sometimes translated differently. Verse 3, he's familiar with suffering. Verse 4, the word suffering is translated infirmities. Surely he took up our sufferings, our infirmities. Uh, The word crushed is repeated. Verse 5, he was crushed for our iniquities. And it's in there in verse 10. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Uh, transgressions is repeated, verse 5. He was pierced for our transgressions, and it's there in verse 8, isn't it? For the transgression of my people he was stricken. Iniquities is repeated, verse 5. He was crushed for our iniquities, verse 11. Uh, he will bear their iniquities. So there's quite a wide vocabulary about sin evil, wickedness, corruptness, going beyond boundaries, twistedness, all these different thoughts about sin as it's described here in this vocabulary. Intercession is repeated, although you might not get you might not notice it in our translation. Verse twelve says he made intercession for the transgressors. It's a word which means get in between. So if you put your hand in between the guard and the blade, you'll get your hands smashed. Um, and he gets in between God, God's wrath and these people. And in verse 6, the word laid, let me just check whether I'm telling you the right thing. The, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I think that's the same word as intercession. He's got in between uh, the iniquity and the Lord. And the Lord, instead of laying it on us, has laid it on him. Into, uh, uh, transgressors, I've already said that. Um, maybe that's a different word. And if, uh, as it was read, did you, you get this sort of constant repeating of certain themes and it gives a flavour to it, doesn't it? Sin, a man of sorrows, uh, somebody who gets treated the way sin deserves but who isn't a sinner. And this sort of echoes and weaves its way through the whole thing. I don't think you can avoid the thought of punishment here. It's actually literally mentioned, isn't it, in verse 5, the punishment that brought us peace is upon him. This is not just somebody who accidentally suffers. It's somebody who suffers in the sense of getting what crime, sin deserves. It's a punishment thing. That's the word penal punishment. 
Okay, so that just gives us a little flavour and just reminds us of some of the words in there. So let's do these three things as extreme rise, his substitutionary suffering and his supreme success. So number one is extreme rise. That's where it comes in. Let's do the rise. There it is. And I, before I just show you the verse, if you've been uh, following through in Isaiah, you will know that the Lord is dead against people and things that raise themselves up against him. Woe to the lofty towers. Woe to the high mountains that will be brought down low. The Lord is by policy against anything that sets itself up against him. Yeah. Now see what it says about the servant. Verse 13. See my servant will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Those are breathtaking words. Raised, lifted up, highly exalted. There is only one other place, I think, in the whole Bible where you get that combination of words. Anybody like to guess where they've read already? Not today, but we have read. High and lifted up. It begins, I saw. High and lifted up. Hmm? No, in the book of Isaiah. Ch ch chapter? Chapter 6. And who is it that who is high and lifted up? The Lord. And I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. There's only one person of whom those words are said up till this point, and that is the Lord himself, high and lifted up. And it's said here about the servant. That is a, a striking thing, high and exalted. And you, you really wonder... How high is he actually going to go? Mm. My servant will act wisely. That's his rise. He will act wisely, meaning he will prosper. He will be successful. It's in 53.10 where it says, The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. So he is going to rise so that the Lord's will prospers in his hand. And in 53.12, it says, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong. At no, so whatever happens to him, he's going to end up in a remarkably high position, remarkably rewarded. Uh, rewarded even as high as the Lord on his throne. And uh, so I think we should not be surprised if we find that this servant is raised to the throne of God himself. And that this servant, it might be said of him, therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess him Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's how high this servant is going to rise. 
Let's look then at his sacrificial sufferings. So uh, that was just very briefly looking at his, uh, his rise. Let's look how far down he goes, because a lot of this is how far, how, how far down he goes. I'm just reading it through again yesterday. It's very moving and inescapable that he suffers. Let's go through the words that speak about his being dis, uh, about his suffering. So, just going through chapter fifty-two, verse fourteen. He, his appearance was disfigured. His form was marred. Verse three. He was despised and rejected. So there's a sort of social suffering. He's despised and rejected. Uh, verse uh, um, verse 3 says he's a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Verse 4 says that um, he was stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. And there's a set of words to do with sort of hitting and striking and smiting uh, and yeah, he certainly suffers. I'm going to put some blood into that picture. Verse 5, he was pierced. Um, pierced meaning wounded, uh, the sort of wound you get by something sharp. He was pierced. Uh, verse 5, he was crushed. Uh, there was punishment, verse 5. There were wounds, verse 5. Verse 7 says he was oppressed and afflicted. So the use of afflicted again. Verse 7 says, is that verse 7? It's actually verse 8. Again, difficult to know quite how to translate it. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Or was it by oppression and from judgment he was taken away? Or does it say judgment was taken from him? That's the word mishpat. And uh, he, he brings Mishpat, but he doesn't get Mishpat. Uh, mishpat, sorry. It means royal rightness. He brings it, but he doesn't get it. Verse 8, he's cut off from the land of the living. Uh, the nation was told that if they didn't walk in obedience, in the end they would be cut off from the land. So, you th- so the rabbis might be saying, yep, yep, this is definitely Israel. But it actually says cut off from the land of the living. And in verse uh, 9, do I mean verse 9? He was assigned a grave. So if that is a literal thing, it means that he died. And verse 11 says, uh, talks, uh, we've, we've already said that he was crushed. And in verse 11, there's the suffering of his soul. The suffering is like really hard work. Real, uh, so the old version says travail of his soul, meaning the sort of hard work that a woman experiences in labor or the sort of hard work that slaves do um, He will, after the hard hard work of his soul and is that the end of the list well you you could make a long long list but it it speaks about suffering doesn't it 
there's no way you can get away from that. It's not a cheerful, um, bouncy uh, uh, poem. It just catalogues his suffering. So he certainly suffers. Now, what's the explanation for his suffering? Uh, the Jewish commentators say that this is the nation Israel and that Israel is suffering for her own sins and paying for her own sins uh, like she did in chapter 40, verse 2. Would you like to look at chapter 40, verse 2? If you're not very good at finding places in the Bible, don't worry. But if you like to follow it, 40, verse 2 does seem to say that Israel pays for her own sins. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Proclaim to her her hard service has been completed and that her sin has been paid for. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So in, by being in exile and that generation dying out, it, it would appear that she paid for her own sins. Is that what's being said in chapter 53? And I don't think it is. I don't think it is at all. Do you remember that the ideal servant is tasked with saving the worm servant. You get it in 49.6. It is too small a thing for you to be my ideal servant to restore the tribes of Jacob, to bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will make you a light for the Gentiles that you will bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. The ideal servant saves the worm servant. The worm servant doesn't save himself. And throughout this poem, the sufferings are substitutionary, meaning one person sinned, the sins deserve punishment, another person pushes that person out of the way, and the punishment falls on the person who has acted as a substitute. I don't think you could possibly get away from this. Look at verse 4. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Surely he took up our infirmities and he carried our sorrows. Verse 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I don't think you can get away from a substitutionary suffering. And this comes in, uh, woof, where did this come from? I think we have suddenly found ourselves in the realm which the Old Testament speaks a lot about, but it's not the, uh, not the realm we've been in thus far, and this is the realm of animal sacrifice. Now, the Old Testament has a very large apparatus, a very large um, pattern, business of animal sacrifice. 
and they did that in the temple every day. And with an animal sacrifice, the human sinner says, I've sinned, and will contaminate the animal by putting hands on the animal. The animal receives this bad thing, and it goes from the human onto the animal, leaves the human, enters the animal, and then the animal gets killed. And there's various things you can do with the blood and various ways you can uh, perform the sacrifice. But that's an animal. And this person is led, verse 7, like a lamb to the slaughter. Uh, this is the quantum leap. The, this human being is treated like an animal sacrifice. <sighs> Extraordinary, isn't it? You, it would, if, you, if you read this for the first time, it would make you catch your breath. And then it would make you breathe a wonderful sigh of relief because if you had been uh, brought up in the Jewish scriptures, you'd be saying, all these animals die. Day after day, places like a abattoir. All these animals die. But how can killing an animal deal with my sin? How can that possibly be? The, bulls of the, bull, the blood of bulls and goats cannot possibly take away sin, can it? And here, in this single uh, stroke, Isaiah says, yeah. The answer to that is some one, some person will be led like a lamb to the slaughter. There's the lamb, there's the slaughter. Verse 10 says, The Lord makes his life a guilt offering. Again, that's the technical term for a sacrifice. The animal receives the sin from the sinner and dies in his place. And this servant, we had a worm servant, and this servant is the lamb servant. What do you think John the Baptist must have thought on the day that he saw Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What an amazing day that must have been when Jesus is acclaimed as the Lamb. Well, as before we just pass on from this, it proves to us that there is such a thing as human sin. Now, it's not only Israel. This is not a sort of anti-Semitic text. It, uh, it, it is talking about humanity. And uh, the whole poem says that there is a huge problem about human sin. And is, there, is it possible that there's anybody in this room this morning who disagrees with that? Is there anybody here? You don't have to put up your hand, but I wasn't wasn't that sort of question, but anybody here in their heart say, oh no, I don't think human sin's a problem. I've never sinned. I, don't, I never have guilt. I never worry about uh, what God thinks about my life. I never worry about what I think about my life. I don't think there's anybody here who would disagree that sin is the problem. And this text confirms that. It's all about dealing with human sin. 
And it goes further than that. The, 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 the problem with human sin is not what... It is what we feel about it. That's certainly a problem. Conscience, guilt. I don't think there's anybody in this room who would say, oh, feeling bad about something I've done, I've never felt that. Anybody here is going to say that, are they? It's not so much what we feel, although that is a real thing, it's what God feels about it. That's what, what does he think? What is the just, holy, righteous God going to think? And how is he going to act against our human sin? That's the thing, isn't it? And there is a God-ordained penalty for sin. The Bible talks about the wrath of God. And because as our society we're sort of tolerant and laid back about all sorts of things that all sorts of people do, and we have been taught and we have learned not to feel too strongly about sin, but God is not part of our society, and he hasn't been indoctrinated in that sort of way, and the holy God thinks sin is an insult to him and a terrible thing. And he's not going to just say, oh well, each to his own. This text proves to us that sin is so awful that God requires death under judgment. There's a God-ordained penalty for sin. And this text shows us that this, all these issues, questions, problems, how can God deal with this? is solved in this passage by the servant taking the penalty instead of sinners. It's all here in this passage. This is the centre of everything. His sacrificial sufferings. Let me say thirdly then something about his supreme success. So the sufferings, uh, the, the Bible has a theme of unjust suffering. There are people who just suffer in the Bible, and it's not particularly explained why. So if you were listening to this series on Joseph, uh, he suffers, he gets thrown into prison. Now, God uses it for good, but it's certainly not at all clear that uh, you know, w- w- he doesn't deserve that. He, it's just a miscarriage of justice. Now, this servant suffers, but it's not just a miscarriage of justice. It is something which succeeds in achieving something. So look at verse 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. It brings us peace. By his wounds we are healed. It changes something in us. Verse 10, he dies, and yet, in verse 10, he will see his offspring, his descendants, his seed, and prolong his days. So there's something that goes onwards from this suffering. Verse 11 says he will see, after the travail of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. So this is something, isn't it? The servant has suffered, but he now says that that suffering achieved something 
which I am totally satisfied with. And there will be a day in which the Lord Jesus says, look at all these people that I have successfully redeemed and I am totally satisfied with the outcome of my work. He will see the travel of his soul and be satisfied. That says something about the power of the cross, actually, doesn't it? It, it, He doesn't die on the cross just in the hope that people might be saved or um, not really quite sure what the response will be. He achieves something by the cross. He will see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. Verse 11 says, By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. He will bear their iniquities. And we come back to this thought, which Paul in the New Testament is going to pick up and run with, of being brought to the position of being declared righteous. Uh, And underlying the word justify is the word in the original righteous, righteousness, righteousnessify. The servant by his death will bring many, Paul will take that word as well, many to the position of being declared righteous, being declared not guilty. Lord, I've sinned. Yeah, but you're not guilty. Lord, look at all the things I've done. Yeah, but you're not guilty. My conscience is troubled. Ah, Well, it shouldn't be because those sins are wiped away, forgotten, dealt with. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. Make them counted as righteous. Isn't that a wonderful privilege for us this morning, if we are Christians in Christ, that whatever sins we have committed, he does not count them against us, because what he counts is what the servant did for us. Verse 12, he is going to be greatly rewarded because of what he did for sinners. I will give him a portion among the great. He will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many. He made intercession for the transgressors. And God says, because you've done this, you will be greatly rewarded rewarded you i'm addressing to the to the ideal servant um, the christ is greatly rewarded so i'll quote that text again um, having been made a servant having humbled himself having become obedient to death even death on a cross therefore god has highly exalted him given him the name that is above every name that at the name of jesus Every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This servant has supreme success in what he set out to achieve. That's grand, isn't it? Am I allowed to say grand? A slightly Yorkshire word. I think that's right, grand that is. I think it is grand. Um, His death was not in vain. 
His death was not just a gesture. His death achieved redemption, salvation. He will see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. So we've looked at his, um, what have we looked at? His, what was the first thing? I can't remember. What, what did I say the first thing was? Is that right? Yes, his extreme rise and then his sufferings, his substitutionary sufferings and then the something success. Is it extreme rise and supreme success? Let's just, there's so much in here, we can come back to this time and again, but let's just draw a few conclusions from it. Uh, what are we to make of this? Well, number one, it is about Jesus. Let's realize that. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. Uh, a diplomat was on his way home in his Mercedes, going through the desert. And he'd been in Jerusalem and he'd picked up uh, a precious copy of the sacred books of Jerusalem. He had in his hand the book of the prophet Isaiah. And as he's going along in the Mercedes, he's reading, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. Oh. He was, hmm? Well, he's being driven. He's being driven. Yes, he's got the, the uh, what do they call him? The chauffeur is uh, up there. He's reading and driving. He's reading and being driven. And he looks out of the window and there's this scruffy head sort of jumping up and down outside following the Mercedes. And he winds down the window and uh, the chap running alongside him, who's Philip, says, Oh, you're reading the book of the prophet Isaiah, aren't you? And he says, Yes, I am actually. Uh, Which bit are you reading? I'm reading this, led like a lamb to the slaughter. Who is the prophet speaking about, himself or someone else? And Philip says, I can explain that to you. Let me in. Opens the door, in he goes. And from that passage, he gives him the good news of Jesus. And uh, the the Ethiopian eunuch, actually, this is, isn't it? Uh, He he gets to the point of saying, you know, this is great. I can see this. I believe this. What's to stop me being baptized? And uh, as the Mercedes goes along, they say, oh, there's some water over there. And baptizes him. Uh, this is the key passage to realize that Jesus is the servant spoken of here. And as the Ethiopian eunuch, so we should confess our sins and repent. The passage is going to go on to say, So seek the Lord while he may be found. Forsake your wicked ways. That's what it's going to say in chapter 55. That's what you should do. Maybe you've come along this morning and all these things are a reminder of Jesus. And in your life and conscience, you know the burden of sin. And here is the chance, the opportunity to turn and to say, yeah, I've done wrong. I don't want that. I want you. I don't want to live that way. I want to live your way. And here's the opportunity to confess sin, to seek the Lord while you have the opportunity. That's today, that's now. To seek the Lord while he may be found and to turn from wicked ways and to believe his promises 
when, when uh, Isaiah um, applies this in chapter 55, he's going to say, Come, all you who are thirsty. Come to the waters. Come and buy and eat. Buy wine and milk. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Come and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest affairs. Come and eat this up. Come and take it into yourself. That's what you do by faith. You say, yeah, that's me. All those promises. Yeah, I want that to be me. I trust your promises, Lord. Come and believe his promises for yourself. And always when you get to the end of one of these sections, there is this jubilation that you can't stop. So when we get to the end of uh, end of chapter 53, we get chapter 54, which says, Sing, O barren woman! You who never bore a child, burst into song, shout for joy, it's tremendous, it's amazing, it's fantastic, look what God's going to do. Uh, he says, uh, just be assured of these promises, be assured of what God's going to do, uh, be assured of what the servant will achieve. Uh, do not be afraid, you will not suffer, suffer shame, do not fear disgrace. He, uh, for a brief moment I abandoned you, but with deep compassion I will bring you back. In a surge of anger I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. O afflicted city lashed by storms and not comforted, I will build you with stones of turquoise and your foundations with sapphires. I will make your battlements of rubies and your gates of sparkling jewels and your walls of precious stones, and all your sons will be taught by the Lord, and great will be your children's peace. Sing! It's fantastic! Let's sing something, shall we? Let's sing 433.